Good morning, Hope Brooklyn. Man, I am excited because this Sunday morning we get to dive into the Word of God. For those of you who don't know me, maybe you're new tuning in, my name is Ryan Diaz. I'm the pastoral resident here at Hope Brooklyn, and it's my privilege to bring you God's Word today. You know, before, actually, before we even hear from God's Word, before we dive into the text that we have for today, I think it's fitting for us to pray. A lot of things are happening in our world, but also a lot of things are happening in our community. Our, our lead pastors, Russ and Anna, they, they actually just had their first child. And we have members of our staff who are sick, and some people are going through some stuff in their personal lives. So I think it's fitting that before we dive into God's Word, that we pray for our community here. So join me in prayer real quick. Father God, we thank you for the Hope Brooklyn community. We thank you for... Russ and Anna, we pray over them as they start this adventure of raising a son. God, we pray over our community and staff, God, those who are sick, those who are struggling, those who are going through something, God, would you meet them where they're at? God, we ask, would you be with us and speak to us as a community so that we might go out into the world, Brooklyn and beyond, bearing your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You know, we're living in a moment in time where the world seems polarized. I mean, it seems like a line has been drawn in the sand on every major issue and topic and thing happening in our world. I mean, you can just look at your news feed. You can scroll through Instagram a little bit to get a sense that we are living in a divided world. Everyone has taken a side and people are taking no prisoners. This is war. People are fighting for their ideals and ideas and their political platforms and and social revolutions. And it seems like everything is about to burst at the seams. It seems like we're divided down the middle and people have picked their sides and they're ready to go at each other's throats. This is the current cultural climate. We're still two weeks after the U.S. election, and we have jubilation on one side, and we have anger and vindication on the other, and we are kind of in this pot together where we're we're looking across the aisles at each other, and we don't see brothers and sisters anymore. We don't see neighbors. We see enemies. And the sad thing is this has seeped into the church. The pews are divided in half. Congregations are split. And rather than seeing people around the table as my brothers and sisters in Christ, we see them as enemies. And as I began to pray and think about God, what would you want me to share two weeks after a U.S. election, before we get into the Advent season, before we get into a new year, what would you have to say to the people of God now? And as I look through the text and I considered where we're at as a church, I, I began to think of a wayward prophet named Jonah. See, I think our church here in the West, in America, I think us, all of us individually, if we're honest, we're a bit like the wayward prophet Jonah. And today we're going to allow Jonah's story to diagnose our condition because I think, and this might be a bold claim to make, I think the church has lost its public witness. 
I think we've lost our prophetic power. I think we're so hindered by other ideologies and ideas and thought patterns that we've actually ceased to be separate from the world and now have become entrenched in it. We have lost the idea and the principle that we are in it, but not of it. And I think there's, there's a reason here. I, th- I think there's a reason why our witness has been compromised. I think there's a reason why the church's prophetic voice isn't as powerful as it should be. And I think the key lies in the story of Jonah. Jonah is Israel's wayward prophet. Jonah is Israel's cautionary tale of a man who misunderstands and and has misappropriated his prophetic identity. And so today, together, we're going to peruse through and journey through the story of Jonah so that we might understand why has our prophetic witness been compromised as the people of God. We're going to diagnose the problem and then We're going to allow the gospel to offer us a solution so that we can reclaim who we're meant to be, the light to the world, a a city on the hill, the salt of the earth, because we are a peculiar people, a holy nation, those called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and those sent out into the world to bring that light to others. And if we fail to understand that we're compromising our witness, then our saltiness will, will grow flavorless. Our light will begin to dim. And if we're not careful, we could end up like Israel before Mount Sinai, worshiping a golden calf, saying, here is our Lord who brought us out of Egypt. And though we might be worshiping the Lord, the Lord is at the mountaintop calling us to be a peculiar people, and we're worshiping a a God of our own making. So let's dive into the story of Jonah together. It it starts in Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 and it says this, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah son of Amittai saying go out at once to Nineveh the great city and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And immediately, we're left to wonder, why did Jonah flee? This is a prophet. This is in his job description. He gets words from God and then he goes shares it with the people. He gets prophetic declarations. He, he gets the word of the Lord and then he goes and tells the people God has appointed him to. This shouldn't be an issue for Jonah. This is his bread and butter. This is his role, his job. And yet when faced with should be another day in the life of the prophet, Jonah runs away. It says he flees to Tarshish. In other words, think of the ancient map. Tarshish is as far as you can go. And rather than take on his prophetic mantle, rather than do his duty, guess what? Jonah flees. And it's this question. Why does Jonah flee? Why does Jonah not take up his prophetic role? This is the question that runs straight through the story. And I think it begs us to question for us as Christians in America Why, knowing God has called us to be a peculiar people, why, knowing that God has called us to be a light to the world, are we fleeing to the far sides of right or left, 
We're fleeing to the far sides of, of political exclusism or following and going to the far sides of ideologies and ideas and we're either hiding or we're too entrenched in the political systems at large. But why are we fleeing from our prophetic role as the church? It's this, this question, this story we're going to unpack together. See, as the story goes on, God doesn't let Jonah go. He sends a wind and literally shipwrecks his plan of escape. And Jonah, in the belly of a ship, is awakened by the sailors. And they're saying, who are you? What are you doing? Why are we in this predicament? And, and Jonah, with probably a little tongue in cheek, says, well, you know, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the God who made the land and the sea. And yet, he's saying he fears God, and yet his actions prove otherwise. They're in this storm because Jonah has been rebellious. And here's the thing. If Jonah was just to repent and ask them to turn the ship around, the storm would cease. And yet, Jonah refuses to repent. Jonah refuses to say, God, I'm sorry for fleeing from the task you've assigned me. God, I'm sorry for neglecting the words you've given me. Guys, let's turn the ship around and head back to shore. I have a mission. No, no, no. Jonah says, you know what? I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. Jonah would prefer assisted suicide rather than to fulfill the purpose and plan and the mission God had given him. Jonah is so adamant that he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He would rather be cast into the depths of the sea than take up his assignment. Why? Why would Jonah prefer death rather than going to Nineveh? If we're honest, some of us we know who God is calling us to be. We know the type of church and prophetic people God is calling us to be. And yet many of us would rather die than go to the people God is sending us to. But why? See, Jonah is cast into the sea. And it says he enters the depths. He, he's literally heading to the underworld to die. And yet God is still not done with his prophet. And so through his divine power, he orchestrates a divine situation by which Jonah is saved. And Jonah, full of thanksgiving, offers up a beautiful prayer and psalm of thanksgiving in the belly of a fish, thanking God for rescuing him, thanking God for redeeming him, but still not repenting for not going. See, this is going to be the interesting piece of this message is that Jonah experiences the redemptive power of God. Jonah experiences salvation. Jonah experiences God's mercy. And I want you to hold on to that one because the great irony is, is that Jonah loves God's mercy, but only so much. And God orchestrates a plan to rescue Jonah. And then Jonah finally, because he's made a vow to fulfill his promise that God goes into Nineveh, but we can imagine not too excited. He marches through the city and he proclaims to them, and in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. We have to understand that's what Jonah wants. See, the, Ninevite, the Ninevites were Assyrians. Assyria, Assyria was a pagan empire that had oppressed the people of God in Israel. 
Eventually, it's the Assyrians who would, who would decimate the northern kingdom of Israel. These are Jonah's enemies. So we have to imagine, he, he got a kick out of saying, in 40 days, you guys are toast. In 40 days, this whole thing is finished. In 40 days, it's going to be fire, blood, and thunder, Ninevites. You guys are done. We would imagine that Jonah is pretty excited that the Ninevites are about to taste the judgment and justice of God. But then, something happened I don't think Jonah expected. The Ninevites hear his prophetic message, and they begin to weep. They fall to their knees and begin to cry out to God and pray. They call a fast. They take it so seriously. It's not just the men and women and children who fast. They make their animals fast. And they begin to say, God, God, we're sorry. God, maybe you'll have mercy on us. They, they, it says they turn away from their wicked ways. They turn away from their sin. And God spares the city. And this is where we get to the answer to our question. Why didn't? Jonah want to go to Nineveh. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 to 11 says this. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be so angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered when the sun rose. God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals. Jonah goes into Nineveh. He preaches to the city and the city repents and God relents from his judgment. And this ticks Jonah off because what Jonah wanted was the destruction of his enemies. What Jonah wanted was fire and brimstone and sulfur to rain down like on Sodom and Gomorrah and to consume the city. He wanted a front row seat to the wrath of God being exposed on a people. Jonah wanted his enemies to die. And then we learn this is why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because he knew that, guess what, there was a possibility 
that at the sound of his prophetic word that the Ninevites could possibly repent. And he knew that God is consistent in his character, even with his enemies. That God, if he were to hear the repentant cries of the Ninevites, he would relent from his judgment. This is why Jonah is angry. Because God decided to spare the Ninevites because they repented, while Jonah wanted the Ninevites to burn. Jonah is upset because God is consistent in his character, even when dealing with his enemies. See, Jonah loved grace and mercy. Jonah loved redemption when it applied to him in Israel. Jonah's ethnocentric, xenophobic in his relationship with God because he loves God, but only when God does for him and his people. Jonah's upset because God is not obeying like he thinks God should work. God is being consistent in his character and and Jonah would have rather have died than to see one Assyrian soul saved. Jonah would have rather have died than to see one Ninevite spared. And so God has to teach Jonah a lesson. And the lesson he teaches him is this, is that though these people, the Ninevites, Assyrians, historically had done great evil to Israel, they still had intrinsic value because they bore the Imago Dei, the image of God. And that while they may have been enemies of God, they were still God's creation. and still an object of God's grace and mercy. And what he needed Jonah to understand is my grace and my mercy, my compassion, my loving kindness, my steadfast love isn't just for people who look like you and act like you, Jonah. It's for all people. That's why we can sometimes call it common grace because it's grace for all people. And if people do repent and do bend the knee and do say, Jesus, you are Lord, then God meets them with grace and mercy. But Jonah... He would have rather drowned than to see his enemies spared. Why do I share this story? Because I believe in this season of division, in this season of polarized political, ideological, and sociological views, in this world where it seems to be rich against poor, black against white, Republican against Democrat. You name the dichotomy. It seems that the church has forgotten that no matter who we're called to, even if it seems to be our enemy, that we are to go with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But like Jonah, We prefer the gospel when it applies to me. We prefer the gospel when it applies to people who think, act, and look like me. But woe to anyone who would suggest that the gospel could apply to the person on the other side of the aisle. But the church is a peculiar people. 
God is calling us to the other side of the aisle. God is calling us to cross no man's land and get into enemy territory and to speak and to proclaim the lordship of Jesus even to our enemies. I want to caution and say that this is not a call for fake pseudo-Christian unity where we just dance through the fields and act like there's not differences. What it is a call for is that despite our differences, we move towards each other with, the, with our crosses on our backs and the blood of Jesus covering both of us and finding a way to gather at the foot of the cross, differences be damned. And I want to suggest and I want to implore us that the reason why people don't listen to the church anymore is because the church looks like everywhere else. See, what was different about the church when it was launched in the first century was that slave and free ate together. Jew and Gentile ate together. Man and woman, Jew and Greek, barbarian and Scythian gathered at the Lord's table. And though their differences weren't erased, they were submerged and baptized into the people of God so that their differences were both challenged and fulfilled. The, the master knew at the table that his slave was his brother and that he had to treat him as such. And the slave at the table knew that he had value and worth because he was at equal footing on the cross with the master, the, the Jew and the Greek, their, their ethnic divides, they, they no longer mattered because they were at the foot of the cross. The church has always meant, meant to be a place where people come from every strata of life and find equal footing at the cross because God's grace is no respecter of persons. And yet, in our churches, we're divided down the middle. And so how can we be a witness to the world if we continue to behave like the world? We love preaching to the choir. We hate preaching to our enemies. We love gathering with people who believe like us, but we would never sit down with someone who disagrees with us. And I would like to propose that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Jonah is a wayward prophet. And I believe, even when I look at my own life and my own inner thoughts sometimes, I believe we're becoming wayward prophets. We love the grace and the good news and the message if it applies to us, but we would never go and share it with our enemies because we would rather watch them burn than be redeemed. You're like, Ryan, that's pretty harsh. And the reality is, is that it is. But if we're honest, that's how we feel. Think about how we interact with each other. I was on social media the other day and I, and I was watching Christians saying things like, if you voted for Biden, please unfollow me. If you voted for Trump, please unfollow me. Don't do business with me. Don't do life with me anymore. And I began to think, but is, is that what we're united around? Now again, let's be intellectually honest. Political differences matter. But do they matter so much that they should divide the people of God? They should be critiqued. They should be addressed. They should be discussed. But divide us? What kind of witness to the world are we if we're like Jonah? Refusing to go to our enemies. Refusing to preach the good news of Jesus to those 
we disagree with. It's almost as if we need a better prophet to model for us. Jesus, who did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped, descended and took the form of a servant. And while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, God reconciled us to himself through his son. See, Jesus went into the heart of enemy territory, humanity. Jesus descended into the heart of a people he knew would reject him and said, come all to me who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I've come to preach good news to the captives and freedom to the oppressed. Jesus dived into enemy territory and preached the gospel and the good news to his enemies. This doesn't mean he didn't critique his quote-unquote enemies. It doesn't mean he didn't challenge their political and social values. I think oftentimes when we think, let's preach the gospel, we think it means, let's just talk about God as love and call it a day. No, I'm here to tell you, the gospel will challenge people's political positions. The gospel will challenge people's social agendas. But unless we preach to them to the gospel, as the scriptures say, if, if no one goes, how will they hear? Jesus is the better prophet. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Because Jesus, when the father said, go to your enemies and speak to them, Jesus went and took it a step further and died for his enemies. I think it's time for the church to rediscover the way of Jesus. The way of enemy love. I think the church needs to rediscover its prophetic voice. And the only way it could do that is to step out of the aisles and stand in the gap. Christ did it. And because we bear his spirit, we can do the same if we would just abandon our narrow vision of what God looks like. How are we going to do this? What does this look like? Well, first, I believe it starts with confronting our prejudices. We must confront our prejudices and biases through repentance and confession. We must admit we have prejudices. We must admit we have biases. We must admit that when we look at certain people, we see them as an enemy. Until we do that, until we can be honest enough with ourselves to admit that, we'll never be able to move past this point. And that only happens through prayer, repentance, and confession. Some of us today, we need to confess for how we view Republicans. Some of us need today need to confess how we view Democrats. Some of us today need to confess how we view the rich. Some of us today need to confess how we view the poor. Because we have biases. We have prejudices. And you can only deal with them unless they're named. They need to be named. And in order for us to be the people God wants us to be, we need to call out our own hatred in our hearts. And once we do that, we must learn to see our enemies as God sees them. See, God 
we often talk about God as like this in love schoolgirl who like doesn't see like, oh, just love. Ah, Jesus. Ah, so loving. Ah. And, and he's like this mad, madly in love schoolgirl who, who doesn't really recognize that pe- what people are, how people really are. As if God is naive to human sin and evil. But he's not naive to human sin and evil. That's why it says, while we were yet sinners. God was completely aware of our status. And yet he saw intrinsic value in us anyways because we bear his image. And I think what we need to rediscover is that we need eyes to see how God sees people as intrinsically value despite the evil they've done or the positions they hold or the hurt they've participated in. This kind of in our cultural climate, this might be a hard pill to swallow, but Jesus died for your oppressors as much as he died for the oppressed. Jesus died for your opponents as much as he died for your allies. And you have to learn how to see how God sees them. It doesn't mean you, don't, you can't address, maybe if they have a problematic view, it doesn't mean you can't challenge their views, but it does mean they are more than their views, they are more than their sins, they are more than the evil they've perpetrated. And lastly, but not least, We must go when called and entrench ourselves as subversive agents and prophetic witnesses amongst the very people we used to call the enemy. Proximity breeds empathy. We must learn how to live amongst the people we call our enemies so that we can entrench ourselves amongst them. We can learn to love them by rubbing shoulders with them so that they might experience the grace and the message of the gospel. Christians are subversive agents. We don't wield power like the world wields power, but we, we empower and we fight and we, and we proclaim the good news of Jesus, not by exerting our power, but by serving the other, the marginalized, the enemy. Band, come join me. Let's get ready to worship. You know, as I was writing this message, I first realized I needed to confess. I needed to acknowledge that I had polarized my faith. That I had forgotten how to see people who disagreed with me as people worthy of dignity and value simply because they bear the image of God. And I had forgotten that God's grace is not just for me, but even for my enemy. And I'm, as I was thinking about this, I thought back to Jesus' words on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus prayed that prayer for the men and women driving nails through his body as they cursed and mocked and jeered and gambled for his clothes. And I began to wonder, what if the church began to adopt that again? Maybe the world would begin to listen to us again. So I'm going to pray for us. And here's how we're going to end. We're going to end praying for our enemies. Because you can't go to a people you're not praying for. I think ultimately that's Jonah's problem. He's so centered around who he thinks God should be. He's so centered around his own people, people who act, think, and look like him. 
that he forgot a fundamental truth, that all of us were made in the image of God and bear his image and likeness, and that they're worthy of God's grace and mercy, and that God is in the business of sending us to our enemies. Let's pray. We're going to worship together, and then we'll take communion together. Pray with me. Oh God, the lover and guardian of peace and charity, grant to all our enemies true peace and charity, together with remission of all their sins, and by thy power deliver us from the plans of the principalities and powers which seek to turn us against each other. Through our Lord, amen, amen. Let's worship together.